Welcome to the Mind Muscle Connection Podcast, a show that is dedicated to educating you on applying science-based training, nutrition, and mindset strategies from some of the top minds in the industry to help you build a leaner, stronger, and more confident self. I'm your host, Jeff Hain. Let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mind Muscle Connection podcast. And today I have Eric Helms back on for the second time. And so if you aren't familiar with him, he is a coach at 3DMJ, a writer at Mass and co-host of the podcast Iron Culture. He also has published multiple peer-reviewed articles in exercise science and nutrition journals. So Eric, uh, thank you for coming back on and excited to get to chat with you again. Always a pleasure and a privilege, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, it's been, I, I think I looked, it was like uh, September-ish and we probably recorded it in like August. So just wanted to get maybe a little update on you in terms of, is there anything going on on your end? And then uh, we'll kind of talk about your training and stuff like that too. Yeah. So I am just about a month into my 2023 uh, natural bodybuilding contest prep season. So getting back on stage for the first time since 2019. Um, apparently that was four years ago. Uh, COVID time vortex makes it seem like far less. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for that. I'm turning 40 this year. That's next month. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a, a cool year. I, I want to take it all the way to WNBF Worlds, which is kind of the Super Bowl for us natties. And uh, that's going to require me starting a little later, pushing my season back. So I'll be competing from September to November when Worlds is. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Also got a lot of travel. Um, got some stuff upcoming. I like I'm coaching at the Sheffield, the SPD Sheffield, which is a IPF International Invitational Meet, the biggest money meet and powerlifting that's ever happened. I have the uh, the honor of coaching Jess Bittner. Um, and then I'll probably be going, not probably, I'll be going to IPF Worlds in Malta in June and um, coaching most likely Jess, potentially other competitors as well, depending on what the final national team selections looks like. So yeah, lots going on for me this year, but all good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And so when you say, when you say you're coaching them, uh, and like you go, like you're obviously coaching them, I'm assuming ahead of time, but then like, you're just kind of there to like, I guess maybe prep them like the days leading up to it during the event, or is that kind of what, what, what that looks like? So yeah, in, in powerlifting for those who aren't familiar, um, people often will have a, uh, like a coach who is their programmer, the person who writes their training and may or may not, if they have the expertise, help them with their nutrition. Um, and then when they actually compete, uh, if that person is not physically in the same location, you know, uh, then they will probably have a, a handler or I think more aptly called a platform coach. Because uh, the higher and higher level you go in powerlifting, the decisions on game day really do make a difference. Um, the ability to know when to take a chip, which just means not going up two and a half, but going up 0.51 or 1.5 or two when you have access to a national or world record can put another competitor in position where they have to do more than they can to beat you if they don't have a chip. Um, and I know two kilos doesn't sound like a lot, but it can make the difference when, uh, when, when someone would prefer to tie and beat you on body weight and now has to go up. Uh, and it may be a, a, just a stretch too far in their deadlift. Now, there's attempt changes you can make. You can make two on the deadlift. You can put in a different opener and change it. Making weight can make a difference. Um, just as an example, in I believe the 63 kilo class at the last IPF Worlds, the top three women had the exact same total. So gold, silver, and bronze, and the placings were decided on body weight. So the competitiveness in powerlifting because of the increased influx in the last five, six years has really meant that you need to know what you're doing on game day. Um, you need to know when you can go to the jury and and challenge it because you got one light and two reds and you didn't agree with the decision or you need to know that you actually have to put down money if you're going to challenge someone else's decision and it's not you know, a bribe or a payoff it's to discourage uh, frivolous uh, challenges to every single other competitor um th there's like all kinds of little rules like that um knowing what okay they got a blue card what does that mean they got a yellow card what does that mean uh for the red light so nonetheless um Platform coaching is something I am I'm I'm pretty decent at. It's not something that I am as good at as I am with programming and nutrition, which is what I primarily do. So I, I work with Jess, um, and I have for well coming up on three years now, um, and I do her programming. But this will be the first time I get to handle her at a meet, which is going to be really exciting. And I was really honored that she asked me to do that. Um, previously, I've I've done handling at a pretty high level um, as an assistant with Bryce to either Matt or Susie Gary at the 2017 and 2018. 
IPF worlds. Um, but because I moved to New Zealand, we both we both used to live in California. So I had the opportunity to handle Bryce at a number of meets up to 2012. And then there's a long period of time where I, uh, we, we, you know, we, we got the best people available who are honestly better than I am, you know, Matt Gary and Susie Gary are amazing. So, uh, but yeah, so when it comes to an international meet, I have that opportunity and I do coach, uh, on the platform here in New Zealand. I'm typically at, at Auckland champs and often at nationals and sometimes at North islands as well. That's really cool. I honestly, you know, I'm, I'm not super in, into powerlifting, but you know, I obviously I'm, I'm into like bodybuilding and, and just general mm-hmm. fitness type stuff, uh, you know, so I feel like I, I know a decent amount about it, but I didn't even really think that, you know, you do probably need a coach there to help you with that in terms of like kind of determining the weight. Right. Cause from my understanding, it's like, you only have like a couple shots at it. And like, if you overshoot or undershoot, you could be kind of shooting yourself in the foot there. So it sounds like that's kind of what you handle there with that, making sure that you're not just like we would do with like a client in terms of their nutrition, just making sure they're not getting in their own head about what they're choosing or anything like that. Absolutely. Uh, it's kind of like the, the, the price is right, you know? So, I mean, if you have a strong lifter, let's say they can deadlift 700, 800 pounds, you know, 317 or 362. If I, if I recall my kilo conversion, right. Their second attempt is going to be 20 kilos less than, than their third, sometimes 15, 10. So if they make the mistake of going two and a half kilos over what they actually can do on that day, they're stuck with a total that is 20 kilos less than what it was, which will absolutely be the difference between first and sometimes fifth at a high level, you know? So your ability to have that knowledge of how well can your lifter grind and your ability to communicate with the lifter uh, and your relationship with them where you could be honest with each other and uh, kind of your, your, your eye of velocity sensor um, which is something I've developed both in research and in practice is are, are, are part of the critical skill, but also just knowing what you can and can't do. Um, so for example, I mentioned on the deadlift, you can get two attempt changes. So on the third deadlift, a very common thing is, is that, you know, what will decide who wins is whether or not these people get their third deadlift and what they put on the bar. So someone is out in front of you, they have a lower deadlift, for example, if they make it, all of a sudden, now you can lower your deadlift to the lowest amount you need to pull to win. But if, I'm sorry, if they miss it, but if they make the deadlift, then you have to beat them, right? So you can put an attempt change to either go up or down based upon whether the person in front of you who you're neck and neck with or very close makes their deadlift. And if you don't do the math quickly on the fly, if you're not paying attention to who has a lower body weight, because you can't tie with a lower body weight, then you lose. Um, whether they have a chip advantage or not, like I mentioned earlier, those are all things that a platform coach needs to have, uh, you know, in their mind to be very comfortable with. And the lifter, in the moment, it's very challenging, especially in a hectic international meet with a lot of people, to be able to keep track of all that. So it's okay to handle yourself when you're just going for a total at a, at a local meet, but to go into an international meet and handle yourself, it's it's almost unheard of now if you look at high level powerlifting. Um, at the national level and bigger countries and especially at the international level. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Cause like, I mean, you got so many things going in, in your mind, you know, you're about to lift this heavy weight. It's like, you have that on your mind. The last thing you want to think about is, are, are those things. And I'm assuming too, probably a little bit of it is also like, uh, the mental side of it as well, too. Is that something that, you know, you, you mess with on that or you d- usually not kind of. Crawl? Well, abs- absolutely. It, and it's a harder thing to do. I actually respect platform people who are like more professional platform coaches than programmers because they have such limited time to become accustomed to the psychology of the athlete. Yeah. So it requires like quickly building rapport, quickly communicating with them, interfacing with their, their programming coach, getting videos of their lifts, and then like asking them like, so do you like to be relaxed or do you need to like, some people need to be brought up before a lift some people need to be brought down. They're too anxious. Um, you know, some people have specific cues that they, they need to hear. Um, some people don't want to hear a, a damn thing. Some people need a word of encouragement. Some people just need to know that your, your hands on your shoulder and you're there. Some people want you to like slap them in the back as hard as you can, <laughs> you know? So it, it is, um, it's individual what each lifter needs to be in the psychological state of arousal to perform. And the coach can, and sometimes they don't play a role in that. Sometimes they're all doing it internally, but the coach can potentially, um, facilitate that or <laughs> cause issues. If, you know, if you have kind of like, you know, a Lane Norton-esque lifter and you're like, let's keep it cool. Let's keep it calm. You know, like, uh, that's not going to work. And, and vice versa, if you have a very, focused internally driven lifter like say mike t and you're like let's fucking go you slap him in the face they're they're gonna slap you in the face and i can tell you you don't want to get slapped by mike t so yeah 
Yeah, just yeah, right. You, you just need to know, you know, the the person that you're coaching and things like that. That's obviously super important um, there. So on on your side of things, you said you're getting ready for prep. Is um, so you said September ish is when you're gonna begin the the season there for, for that. Is there anything going into it that you are thinking about doing differently this time around or anything like that? Yeah. So in 2019, I was um, I was trying to compete with my first show in April, and then uh, I wanted to just keep going and do a bunch of shows. Um, although I found that my I was really starting to kind of run out of steam by my last show in August. Um, so I was like, look, if I want to do Worlds, I need to push things back. So instead of starting uh, in I think mid December of 2018, or starting like, like a January of this year, in kind of parallel. That's why I pushed it back and, and kicked things off in February. I'm also a little bit heavier this time. I did like a diet before the diet in, in 2019. I wanted to start in a really good position to give myself the best shot and eat up into shows, which I'll still have the opportunity to do. I'm just giving myself more time and pushing my shows back later. So it's uh, should have a similar outcome, but we're going to see if that quote unquote diet before the diet was um, you know a beneficial strategy, if it makes any kind of qualitative difference in how hard this process feels or not. You know, uh, It may be that it's just six of one, half dozen of the other. So that's one thing. Um, one other different thing that I'm doing is I actually do want to try to do a powerlifting meet, uh, this year. So since I'm turning 40, I thought it'd be fun to do an M1 competition masters one. And since I'm going to be dieting, uh, down to my stage weight, that's typically around 80 kilos. I normally compete in the 93 kilo class. So I'll be able to do like an 83 M1 meet. So by going down a weight class and then being old, I might actually be able to do decent at the, uh, at least the New Zealand level. So I'm going to see if I can time things to do uh, North Islands here in June. So that'll be an interesting thing. It might be a bad idea. Like powerlifting and like bodybuilding and powerlifting as training designs mesh great. But um, dieting and getting shredded and powerlifting don't. So it'll it'll take a little bit of a balancing act. I'm up for the the challenge. Is is that going to be the lowest that you've competed at uh, for powerlifting meet in in a while? I have done this once before. Um, back in 2011, I competed around 83. It was, I think 82 and a half was the weight class because in the States. Um, and that was, uh, but I had a full day to rehydrate. So I had to actually like cut to make weight. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I found that like, if I'm 85, 86 and I water cut, I'm probably fine. But if I'm actually walking around at 83, I'm just a lot weaker. So like my relative strength is actually quite similar. So a, a weak dieted 83 Eric is equivalently strong to a 93 Eric, maybe even weaker. Um, I think I remember my Wilk score went down back then. So it, it is, I've actually done it twice. Yeah, I've, I've been in that in, in lower weight classes due to dieting coming off back up or on the way down or, or actually ch- hanging around there. So I think June is kind of like the sweet spot. I should be based upon my trajectory of weight loss at the moment within water cutting distance of 83, uh, but not too far and also not too close because that's still like, you know, 10, 15 pounds over stage weight ish. So it's not terrible. Yeah. So, um, for you on that is how, what's the, does that change your programming at all in terms of how you would go about it from like a normal bodybuilding competition? If you didn't have that powerlifting meet in there? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, for the last, so 2020 and 2021, I was really focused on my strength goals um, which was great. Didn't work super well with, uh, COVID. I was actually lined up to do New Zealand powerlifting nationals. I qualified, uh, at, at the regional meet. And then I was going to go in, uh, June, I believe. I can't quite remember of 2021, but anyway, we had our lockdown. So the masters got to compete and then it, it, it we had to, had to close down the country. So I had to do PRs in the, in my home gym, which I was really happy to hit. So I squatted 500 pounds for the first time. Um, and, uh, you know, earlier the year I had a 260 kilo or 572, 573 deadlift, which was a PR for me on the platform. Um, and I benched to 155, uh, paused. So like, these are, which is like 340 something. I can't remember the math is, is hard. I want to say it's like 350. Um, anywho, so I, I got a lot stronger, which is great. Hit some, hit some lifetime PRs on all three lifts that year. Um, and that requires a lot of specific work for, for me. I have to bench a lot. I have to squat fairly heavy, fairly regularly, and I have to deadlift fairly reg- regularly. And it beats me up. Not like I didn't get injured, but um, there's certainly an opportunity cost at the very least. So with trying to do a little bit of both, I'm really trying to play with what I think is like the minimum effective dose of what will make me stronger right now. So I start 
one session a week each for the lifts with a single at a relatively high RPE. Uh, and then I do two sets of three at 80% of that single. And then I have exercise selection that I think will contribute to the big three, but that I also think is good for, for hypertrophy. So for example, um, one of my quote unquote accessory lifts, uh, or, or chest exercises is just a medium grip bench press. So it's just shoulder width apart. And I bench max people with, I'm six foot to where I, where I can bench the most. I could have chosen dumbbells, you know, I could have chosen, you know, low incline dumbbell press or something like that, but I don't think it's that much better or different in my experience from my physique, uh, than doing, you know, more benching. So just doing like less arched medium grip bench um as my you know my second like one of my other chest exercises i also have dips and cable crossovers in the week but like little things like that so first having those those days where i'm actually doing the specific practice which i will ramp up a little bit when i get closer to competition or just when this stops working because right now i'm just able to add like two and a half kilos every couple weeks uh to to that top single and it's a non-issue um or i can move the same weight faster which is an indication that i'm getting stronger so basically i'll just milk the minimum effective dose to get stronger as long as i can uh and then when i need to i might kick it up a little bit but, I, but the challenge is that i have to observe all right is it that i'm not tr doing enough specific training for powerlifting, or is it that i'm now 88 kilos and before i was 94 and that's why i'm not getting stronger so um that will take some uh some 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 guesswork to be honest um and what you don't want to do is get that wrong like okay i'm actually dieted fatigued and lighter which is why i'm getting weaker so let me just do more squat bench and deadlift heavy like right. that's that's <laughs> you know that's not necessarily the uh well you're fatigued let's chuck heavy weights on the bar right so that's not necessarily the uh the, the right call so i think i just need to be savvy communicate with who will be coaching me more at that point uh, and collaborating with alberta nunez and, and just making sure that i'm not sacrificing my bodybuilding competitive goals for this kind of neat add-on powerlifting thing. So I might, I might pull out of the powerlifting comp, but right for now, it's still on, on, on the cards. So it sounds like, again, the, the bodybuilding is like priority number one. So it's like, you're probably going to base most of your decisions on making sure you get that. Like that's again, when you, when you decide what you're going to do, you're thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to do bodybuilding, powerlifting. We're just going to kind of see how I'm feeling. So 100%. I guess, I guess on that too, uh, as you get closer to the meet, was your training change again, where it's like, maybe you do like back off the training volume, uh, for like more of the accessory work overall as well too. Um, I'm curious to hear how that's, how that would kind of work out as you lead into that. Yeah, absolutely. Basically what I would do is <clears throat> time a deload for my bodybuilding work the week of the meet and then run a proper taper on the specific movements. Um, so when I do that, we're typically looking at maintaining the loads at a pretty high, you know, maximal, I typically practice my openers about a week out, meaning I'll work up to a single at like an eight RPE ish on all three. Um, and I do those uh, on the same day, about a week out. And that kind of is the last heavy work I do. And then I'm doing like singles at a six, single at a five, single at a four day off compete. Um, and uh leading up to that i will probably the week prior have kind of peaked in my loads that i'm going to hit on on the three lifts um and that same week that i'm coming in to hit my you know my singles uh, on my openers i'll kind of like front load my accessory work and then the next week when i'm doing those singles at a six five four um that's when i will basically just do like one set on each of my accessory work just like what i think will not result in atrophy you know yeah yep. <laughs> um yeah and, that, and that's basically the game plan Cool. Uh, and, and I guess to go back to like the overall game plan for everything, it sounds like the, the big, the big change from this time and last time was you, you said you did a diet like before the diet. And so you had less time. So now this time you just started it and then you're just going to go straight through pretty much, or is there going to potentially be like a diet break, like around the pot? Cause it seems like that would be kind of halfway ish. I feel like maybe a little hmm. closer to yeah. it. Yeah. So 2019, uh, if we, if we rewind back to my 2018 off season, I hit a peak body weight of 220 pounds or hundred kilos, um, which is pretty heavy. So what I did was around April, 2018, I did a, a, a cut for April and I lost a fair amount of bloat pretty quick and very quickly got down to like 94. Um, so I lost like 12 pounds in a month, which again, a lot of bloat. That was not hard. I was not at all hungry didn't lose any muscle mass. It was my performance stayed the same. So that told me like, maybe I don't need to get all the way up to hundred kilos. That's not necessarily helping me, but it was just the accumulation of many times of a lot of time in a surplus. Right. 
And then I just kind of ate. Yeah, I was like gain taming, if you will, uh, until around September. And then in September into early October, so it's still a month. I just think I started mid-September. I did another cut and I got down to like 88, 89. And then I just kind of held on to that, got up to around 89, 90. And then I started my prep in December so that I wasn't like, I mean, it's not a diet before the diet. If you go from dieting to dieting, that's just a longer diet, right? So <laughs> so I had both, I had um, uh, basically two months uh most of October, all of November, and the first week or two of December before I started prep after that. And I, it was pretty cool. Like I started only like just under 20 pounds over stage weight. So every time I lost anything, cause I'm a big guy, like in terms of height, I'm six foot, I'm not huge, but I mean, um, 20 pounds over stage weight means something different when you compete at 80 kilos versus say 65. Right. So every time I, I would see scale weight changes, I could see a change in my physique Compared to when, let, let's say, prior preps, I started at 100 kilos. That's like the heaviest I've started a prep or around 96 or something like that. The first five kilos, you just look worse. Yeah. You're just like <laughs> flat, you know? Like, and uh, so this time it's somewhere kind of splitting the difference. I only got up to around 96 kilos this off season. And that's where I started my diet. And now as we speak, I am in the 92s. So, um, yeah, I'm. I'm right around the point now where uh, I'm going to start seeing, like, like I look better as I lose weight, which is nice. It didn't take much longer, really. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think the midway point will be around June. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I, we'll see. Basically, I, I like to do diet breaks in an auto-regulated fashion. Like once it starts to feel hard, that's when I, you can benefit from the psychological uh, reprieve that a diet break offers. And then it's easier to get back into the same deficit that would have felt harder, which I think does lend itself towards being able to push yourself further and being able to get as lean as you need to get, which for me is really lean for me to be competitive because I'm not, you know, got gifted bodybuilding. So what, what, uh, what's going to be the uh, ideal stage weight? What are, what did you say you were looking to get down to? I mean, it's not necessarily the ideal stage weight. It's just the historical stage weight. So I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've necessarily added a, a, a su sufficient amount of muscle mass to my frame that, you know, within the air water weight, I'm going to see a higher stage weight. So I'm suspecting it'll be around 80 kilos, which is a uh, high one seventies for, for the American listeners when I'm really, really peeled. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to check back in with you once you, once you get closer to it, like you said, you're kind of in the, uh, the easy, I guess the easier part, like you said, though, the initial part of that, that fat loss phase or, or cut, it's always, like you said, you just, you're, you're lighter weight, but you're just, you don't really look different. Like you said, you just kind of look depleted. And I know for me in the past, I would always like, before I kind of knew what was going on, you know, I think that always kind of deterred me from running a cut because I was like, oh no, I'm losing muscle. Like I'm losing weight. I don't look as good, but it's like, that's just kind of unfortunately how it is at that beginning part but then like you said once you just like hit that certain point you just then you start to just notice change and i think that's where you can if you can get through that first part you're, you're golden there yeah and i think you know a piece of advice to anyone listening is if you're doing a contest prep like just don't pay attention for the first couple months like yeah. just your performance won't be that negatively affected you shouldn't be hungry at this stage if you're hungry in the first few months of a in my case like a seven month contest prep that's not a good sign right? you're trouble. <laughs> yeah you're cutting too hard or maybe you're too food focused to be really going into a contest prep like i was looking forward to cutting. i don't like i don't want to eat right now and i won't until you know i lose another five six seven eight pounds or something like that so i'm just living my life and i've just made some substitutions to make my my habitual diet lower calorie you know swapping out Greek yogurt that has some fat and carbs in it. It's plain Greek yogurt. Just one. Um, not putting feta on the burgers I make at home instead of having a baked potato, having some broccoli, that type of thing. So it's um, it actually is a pretty substantial cut in calories, but it's, I don't even notice it. Like it hasn't impacted anything. My performance is trending up, and I'm not at the point yet where I need to start practicing my posing. So there's no obligatory reason why I need to be constantly looking at physique, right? I step on the scale. I put it into the app happy scale to get a nice running average. I'm not worried about my loads. I can just kind of get a nice mathematical trend. It's going in the right direction. And I'm performing well. Fantastic. Um, and starting maybe in like mid-April, six weeks, seven weeks from now. At that point, I'm going to start practicing my posing. And I'll be, you know, I'll be faced with my physique. And that's the good thing is at that point, only looking better and better week by week. So I think, um, yeah, do yourself a favor. And like, don't pay attention during the period where you're just getting 
flat and losing bloat and like i lost three kilos but i look worse oh my god i just dieted off my hamstrings you know yeah so. luckily luckily it doesn't happen like that uh it takes takes a lot longer than that but yeah no i i like that you know like you said in the beginning it's just you kind of make those small changes you know just less like you said just maybe taking out cheese you know lower fat type stuff you know just small changes like that you don't really have to make these like big drastic changes in the beginning so again that's that's awesome but looking forward to kind of seeing how your your prep goes and um like i said we'll probably you know check in with you again at some point before, as you get closer to it and, and everything so cool well let's uh let's dive into the uh topics today um so the first one i wanted to talk about was kind of a peri workout nutrition so that essentially is just like you know nutrition around your workouts and specifically for for muscle growth but maybe we can kind of hit on the differences between strength and muscle growth so um i know there's just kind of a lot of like back and forth on this particular topic like i feel like at some point it was like you have to you know it, it's you, you need to make sure it's perfect but then it's other times it's also been like oh it doesn't matter at all and so uh i just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it maybe what the research kind of says so maybe if we could just talk about uh maybe the pre-workout side of things, you know, what is actually important for, um, uh, in terms of muscle growth in terms of nutrition side of things, right? Yes. Yeah. Nutrition. Yep. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting, uh, area of research that I think we're only getting a little more clarity on now, in my opinion. Um, and we were kind of piecing things together previously. Uh, if you looked at the collective body of research, let's just say three, four years ago, um, 2018 or prior, we knew that going into a workout glycogen depleted, could impact performance. Um, the you know severe enough glycogen depletion can uh, mess with calcium handling in the sarcoplasmic sarc reticulum and actually impact the quality of force production. Uh, and more consistently and less mechanistically found, but actually in applied studies, uh, you can find that people are unable to perform as much volume when they're glycogen depleted. Um, now, I do mean having in, in studies where they actually measured glycogen levels. There are some studies where people just go low carb and they don't actually see a negative impact on performance. Sometimes they do, but not consistently. And I think one thing that we've come to realize is that low carb doesn't necessarily equal glycogen depletion, um, especially in the moderate term, especially if, if calories aren't coming lower and if, especially if there's not depletion exercises. So if you just go on a very low carb diet, uh, your body is quite good at preserving a sufficient level of muscle glycogen to perform and once you go through some of the early adaptations to a low-carb diet, you're probably fine if you're doing relatively moderate volumes or lower, um, which is interesting. And uh, it, it's, it's intriguing. Uh, overall, I would say low-carb diets trend towards not being great for hypertrophy or strength uh, when we look at studies on strength athletes, but it's not nearly the, the magnitude of effect you might suspect. Um, and uh, there was also only a research that looked kind of at the big picture perspective at glycogen so kind of looking at whole muscle glycogen depletion you know you'd throw moderate volumes in someone and go oh they're only lost like they're only down by 25 percent of their glycogen so really do we need carbohydrates you're fine um however in the last few years uh there's been a series of studies that have all kind of led to one another to help us understand that there, there could be some of an some somewhat of an effect here um i think there's a uh, there, there, there's a group that has been, well, actually, it's not just one group. There's multiple groups now that have access to technology where they can look at um, specific locations of glycogen in the muscle. So subcellular locations, so near the sarcoplasmic reticulum or near the sarcolemmal uh, membrane or in, in, other, in, in, in the intermyofibular area or other areas. And uh, also within different types of muscle fiber. So your, uh, you know, type 2X myosin isoforms that are more likely to contract and be contributing to heavy lifting versus your uh, kind of slower phenotype uh, muscle fibers. And in some of the recent research we've done with very like practical applied approach to training, like having people do a five by five at 75% on squat and deadlift and then doing some, uh, let's say, uh, Bulgarian split squats afterwards, like a prototypical um, powerlifting workout. Yeah, you know, glycogen is only depleted 20, 30% overall, but there's substantial glycogen depletion in the particular areas which fuel contraction in terms of the subcellular locations. And it is predominantly in uh, those faster twitch fibers that are primarily contributing to heavier lifting. And sometimes it is near complete glycogen depletion. So we're seeing that uh, this kind of macroscopic picture of overall glycogen depletion is not telling the whole story. Um, and that may be part of the reason why some people feel like, you know, I, I can't do 
two squat sessions in a row and, and perform well, even if I'm not necessarily sore, I don't think I've produced a lot of muscle damage. Perhaps. We don't know. Um, there are a lot of mechanisms of fatigue and uh, things that can impair force production that are not related to just glycogen, but are interrelated because when you're glycogen depleted, that can also uh, impact muscle damage. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. I don't think we want to go down that rabbit hole. If we just focus on the more recent applied research, we actually do see that in certain circumstances, pre or peri-workout feeding of carbohydrates can improve performance. Um, so there's been a series of studies by a group led by Naharudin, uh, where they have basically compared either water or breakfast or a placebo breakfast, which is basically just like a non-caloric sludge compared to a carbohydrate sludge, or even comparing uh, a carbohydrate drink to a carbohydrate sludge and seeing the effect on performance in people doing four sets of squats and four sets of bench press with high reps reasonably close to failure. And their first study was really interesting. Breakfast beat out water. People got more volume on the squat and bench press. Their second study was even more interesting, where a placebo breakfast and an actual breakfast, again, gross sludges, but nonetheless, one had no calories or very little one had a lot of calories, both beat out water with no difference between the two. Now it's like, oh, shoot, what's going on here? Is this the uh, a placebo effect that people think they need food before they train? Or is this potentially some type of... Um, satiety-induced uh, effect that actually is physiological, like a gut-brain connection, because satiety was enhanced in both groups similarly um, that, that had a placebo or actual breakfast? Or is it, you know, is it psychological or is it, or is it appetite? We're not sure. So then the final test was comparing a liquid to a semi-solid meal, both having carbohydrates, so the participants all knew they were getting food, and there was still a difference, which indicates there is some appetite signaling which can impact performance. And that tells an interesting story, but it's limited to the design that was used by Naharudin, which is relatively low volume, uh, eight total sets, right? Two, two exercises. Um, and I was very privileged to be a part of a meta-analysis uh, published by my, my PhD student, Andrew King. Um, and that recently came out just last year. And what we took is we took all the data on pre-workout or peri-workout, potentially you know, inter-workout, carbohydrate feeding, and the impact on performance. Uh, there was not enough to look at strength. And again, like I mentioned earlier, there's actually an inconsistent effect on strength from pre-workout feeding. So that's one thing that probably won't be affected by whether you had a meal right now is like a 1RM. But we did observe significant effects comparing uh, fed state versus non-fed state uh, carbohydrate feeding for total volume performed. And the interesting thing is that the moderator analysis suggested that this uh, was enhanced the more volume you did and the longer the fasting period was. And when you look qualitatively at the studies, it seemed more of the studies where they use lower body training, which is more total muscle mass, therefore higher energy expenditure. Those ones all seemed to stack the deck towards a carbohydrates matter. So the take home there is that, hey, uh, you know, if you have a high volume leg day that you're going to do first thing in the morning after an overnight fast, you might notice a difference if you were to have a pre-workout meal versus not having anything or even having a maybe that that sludge that Naharudin looked at. But if you're using lower volumes or not very uh, high, high muscle mass exercises or you're not very fasted, you probably just don't want to be hungry. And it doesn't really matter what you eat so long as you're not going into your training feeling uh, like like you're you're not satiated so that's kind of where we're at overall these were reasonably large effect sizes i mean that's not true they were moderate effect sizes they're not just small or trivial um but they were moderated by fasting length uh as well as the total volume which i think is really interesting yeah that that is uh super interesting so it, again it kind of just comes down to it, it depends there in terms of you know like what what muscle groups you're training and um you know again how high the volume is it, it that, that's going to really de depend on or that's what's going to be kind of the big thing at play here i guess my question off of all that is like so say somebody does you know they kind of have like a schedule where they don't have a lot of time to like they, they work out in the morning they don't have a lot of time to eat um, but they are you know worried about muscle growth like is that something where you're just like hey this is just kind of how it is you're just gonna you know we kind of have to take it or is there any like you know, anything that they could potentially do there in that situation? They can. You know, another interesting finding that we had was that the dose of carbohydrate was not uh, related to the the performance. So just having something <clears throat> seems, to, seems to make a difference. And when you think about the time course of, uh, you know, glycogen synthesis, 
and the time course of when you know blood glucose appears and you know and stays regulated it doesn't require much right so well we haven't fully elucidated the mechanisms of why there's a relationship between volume but not the carbohydrate dose i think that's what's going on so if you are someone who has to get to work at 8 a.m so you wake up at 5 30 and you're at the gym by 6 and you have to shower and change the play is probably to have a scoop of whey and water and like a banana um, because it's something and uh, that hopefully is sufficient enough to make you not feel hungry. Uh, most people pretty early in the morning don't feel hungry anyway. And, you know, a piece of fruit and whey is, is reasonably satiating. Uh, and hopefully that just gets you through before you can have a proper breakfast, you know, afterwards or a bigger lunch or whatever works for you. But uh, that's the good news is you don't have to have a 100 gram carbohydrate meal. Um, you know, in fact, for, for many folks, if we were to turn back the clock even further, uh, it was like, you know, 2013, 2014, where we collectively decided as an evidence-based community that, oh, peri-workout nutrition really doesn't matter very much for lifting, right? Before that, however, the mechanistic data that we had, the very limited data would really indicate, or at least led people to conclude, this is important. And, you know, having your, your post-workout shake and having your pre-workout like waxy maze or whatever was all the rage. And I was, I was there at this time, you know? Um, and I think what really helped the intermittent fasting crowd catch ground and get popularity was the fact that people went from eating way too much, way too close to training, thinking the faster, the better, you know, having sometimes we're talking 150 grams of carbohydrates from sugar 30 minutes prior to training. I've seen that, that type of thing recommended on like bodybuilding forums back in the day to then having just a cup of coffee before they trained and lo and behold, they, they felt better. And that's like proof that this is bullshit. So the timing of um, kind of the eight-hour fasting window and training in a fasted state, the kind of Martin Burkham-esque IF approach or time-restricted feeding, probably more accurately called, um, with the, oh, hold on, look at this data suggesting maybe peri-workout feeding is not that important, created this community online that was really like just ready to throw out the whole idea of eating before your workout or even that it was a negative. And I think one thing is potentially true is that you do get a negative effect from eating too much before training. Um, even when we look at endurance athletes, some of the things that they deal with is they're, they're considering, all right, what's the most amount of carbohydrate I can onboard before it starts to cause uh, GI discomfort, which can have a negative impact on performance. Uh, and there's even such a thing as like, quote unquote, training the gut. Like you build up to a higher level of carbohydrate to make that gut tolerance a little better because it has a direct impact on performance. And for us lifters, the impact on performance is much less. We don't need a high amount. So kind of taking this collective knowledge that we've gone across time, instead of going, you know, full 180 and having literally nothing before you train except, you know, coffee or something like that, um, having a small meal, I think is probably even better than the alternative. I, I can't tell you how many people I was working with in like the early 2010s who had gone from the you know, like IFBB pro kind of <laughs> peri-workout protocol of eat all your food just around training, um, or even sometimes science, quote unquote, based, based on, on our limited data to like an IF approach felt better. And they felt even better when I asked them like, yo, dude, like, let's just have like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something like that. Or, and not half an hour before, but like two hours before, you know, uh, and all those Naharudin studies were actually having them feed two hours before. And a lot of the studies do. So I think, there's a, there's a big middle ground and it allows for a lot of individualization. So I think so long as you're able to not feel hungry going, going into your training and, uh, and on days where you do have a high volume of especially compound lifts, making sure that there is some carbohydrate in that meal, then I think you're good to go. Um, and you know, for contest preppers, you know, like not feeling hungry and not having a high volume leg day, that, that could be, you know, sweet potato, broccoli, and chicken, only like 20 grams of carbs. It's like, that's fine because we're not actually trying to onboard a lot of carbs. And then you just need to think strategically, all right, where am I going to have my leg day in my week to where I could actually get a decent amount of carbohydrates in? maybe have it later in the day on the day that suits it. So I've eaten more, or maybe I have it on my refeed day where I have more carbs to play with. And that type of pre-planning can uh, leverage all the advantages that we think there might be in certain circumstances from peri-workout feeding. Yeah, super interesting stuff. And and like you said there with that, you again, you don't want to go too far with it now. And then like you said, just slam a ton of food like 30 minutes before, because that could be something that you just do too much. And then again, that's going to uh, negatively impact your uh, training performance. And, and and again, you kind of mentioned that like that pre-workout window, we're talking typically like what, what you said, like one to two, one to three hours beforehand, or is 
that kind of little far on the other side there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't seen data on three hours, but the, the studies and the meta-analysis were a mixture of as early as two hours before to even doing intra-workout carbohydrate, which absolutely is not necessary. I don't think there's any advantage to doing that, um, but it's certainly an option. You know, like if, like, let's say that person who wakes up in the morning just can't stomach the banana and the, uh, you know, the, the, the shake. Maybe they nibble on something or even have Gatorade during their workout. Some of those studies do show that effect. Um, I know Naharudin did find a better effect from a semi-solid versus liquid, but there's also studies in the meta-analysis where carry workout slightly outperformed, um, you know, in, in some of the studies, uh, nothing, right? So it's, it's kind of, uh, it's because the data is not super, super specific, like you need to have X amount of grams of carbs before training, and it's more like have carbs either during or before training, anywhere in the one to three hour, one to two hour range, probably is what I would say, or 30 minutes to an hour range, two hour range, um, that lends itself towards a lot of self-experimentation because that variability um, does come from different study designs, but it probably also comes from individual response. And uh, while on average, those things might not pop as significant, it doesn't mean that it might not matter for you. So like, as an example, for myself, I always eat a relatively light lunch and I do it two hours before training. And that's the right combination of feeling satiated, but not feeling lightheaded, but not feeling like I'm digesting during my training that helps me perform best. And that is true of whether I've got a pretty hard leg day or whether I've got, you know, just some bench press or something like that. Yeah, no, that, again, another good point there, the, the individualization of it is super important, right? Some people, you know, do enjoy kind of, I think, training on like an emptier stomach. Uh, and then some people do like to, you know, feel like they they had something before. Um, but again, I think really just to sum that up, like the biggest thing is like, just make sure you're not going into your training, like super hungry, uh, as that could be something that's that could negatively impact training performance. One one other thing on that that I wanted to hit on is uh, energy balance. Does that, does your overall energy balance play a role in this? Uh, does that kind of alter it at all? Or is it still uh, similar? Tough to say, um, you know, the, the studies on peri-workout and pre-workout nutrition typically have, they're, they're typically short-term, you know? So what we're looking at is we feed you two hours before a thing, and then we have a 45 minute session and that's all we analyze. So that could be in participants who then went on to diet for the rest of the day. It could be in participants unless they specifically ex excluded for it, who had been dieting for prior days. So it is not yet known. We haven't said, okay, but what about their chronic state that they were in for months prior? Um, we would need more research on like dieted people. So from a scientific perspective, I can't answer that question. From a practical perspective, I can say it probably does. Um, if someone is dieted to the point where they're experiencing symptoms of REDS, you know, relative energy deficiency in sport, or if they're below their lower intervention point and they're really, really lean, uh, those things have been shown globally to negatively impact performance, right? So... I think um, one piece of research we can lean on is actually Jackson Pios's work. Uh, he published work for his PhD on diet breaks. And one of the studies was a secondary analysis of his main uh, analysis and looked specifically at performance during the diet break. And during the diet break, you actually saw a better performance in terms of lower body muscular endurance, which kind of lines up with what we were talking about in the meta-analysis, the higher volumes and the lower body uh, you know, performing better. So this indicates that acutely coming out of a deficit and eating at maintenance will actually improve some of the same performances that seem to be improved by carbohydrate. So I would say, yeah, a deficit probably does matter. Um, and uh, unfortunately, if your goal is dieting, there's not a, a huge way around that. Um, but if there is a time when performance does matter, that's when you would probably want to come out of a deficit. So linking it all the way back to, to your questions about my powerlifting uh, competition, I probably won't be dieting. Uh, the week that I actually perform, or maybe even the week that I'm trying to work up to my heavy maxes or my openers. Um, so that would be an ideal time to take a diet break based upon the data we have, even though it's not data on one RMs, it's data on muscular endurance. Why not stack all the chips in my favor if I can just rearrange when I'm dieting and when I'm not? Well, and you might get that benefit of taking you know, that diet break during that time too, you know, as you, as you're kind of pushing. So there, there's also that as well too. So yeah, no, that, that is super interesting. And, and yeah, it makes sense too, right. Where it's like, that's why we kind of tell people, Hey, you don't want to be in a deficit if you're trying to really push building muscle, because again, you're, I mean, ultimately if your performance sucks, it's like, it's going to be tough to, to build more muscle, you know? So, uh, that, that all makes sense there. So what about on like the, the opposite end, the, uh, the post-workout, is there anything specifically that, that is important here on the, on this side? 
Yeah, this one is still kind of that understanding we have from previously that the peri-workout window for enhancing muscle protein synthesis is kind of more like a barn door um, rather than a window. So if you had way before you trained, you probably don't need to be concerned with the timing afterwards. If you're not training first thing in the morning, so you're not coming off of an eight-hour you know, fasted state, um, let's say you're training after lunch, you've already had breakfast and lunch, you're basically already in that anabolic window and you've got uh, you know, amino acids floating around. I think one thing that always is pretty sobering to people is when they look at the data on how long does it take to digest and therefore have amino acids start to appear in the blood and therefore lead to elevated rates of muscle protein synthesis, which of course are not exactly the same and don't necessarily track perfectly, but there is some relationship. Um, you have to actually get amino acids out of your gut to get them in the bloodstream, to get them in the muscle, to actually lift muscle protein synthesis conceptually. And it takes, say, eight hours to digest a small steak, you know. Uh, it can take eight hours or so to digest a, uh, you know, you know, an omelet with four eggs or something like that based upon the data we have. So whey is the, like the exception. It's the fastest protein. Um, and even it, you're looking at kind of three hour digestion time, depending on the bolus. So the idea that, um, the shake you're having post-workout is getting in so quick to be uniquely hitting this window uh, that might not be something, depending on what you ate prior, that is actually starting to impact your uh, protein metabolism until three, four hours later anyway, um, depending on what you've eaten. And this may not appear to be exactly the way I'm describing it when you look at the research, the short-term acute research on muscle protein synthesis in response to whey, but that's because they have people come in in a fasted state and they only have whey. And they don't have it with, with other foods. They didn't have the pre-workout meal we're talking about. So it creates this artificial um, condition of faster gastric emptying and therefore faster rates of uh, amino acids and plasma and then higher or uh, earlier peaks in muscle protein synthesis. So I think um, when people start to realize that in 90% of real world conditions, you've kind of got this conga line of protein being digested throughout the day. And the only time you're really truly in a fasted state is maybe first thing in the morning. And then it's okay. So I wake up and I have some whey and water before I train and I'm good to go. And all other times, I it's not a bad idea to have a protein protein shake post-workout, but it's not something that is critical. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, that I, I think when people get protein, they think that they automatically just have to take that right after. But like you said, what you eat beforehand is going to play a big role in that. And so my understanding of it was that like what you, again, what you do beforehand is going to play a big role in terms of like, you know, kind of when you'd want to eat, right? Like if you didn't eat before you work out or it was like three, four hours before it's like, you probably want to get that in sooner rather than later. Whereas like if you did eat beforehand, it's like, Hey, you have a little bit more wiggle room here. Then, you know, like, like you said, at one point, it was like, you got to slam that protein shake right away. So. Well said, that's exactly the way I, I would advise it. And, um, we don't want to go all the other direction to where it's like, it doesn't matter so long as you hit your 24 hour protein intake. Um, we, we do know conceptually that there are are limits to how well your body uses protein for the purposes you're taking it in for when you take and, and in terms of timing like unlike glycogen or adipose tissue we don't have a great mechanism for just holding on to to amino acids you know it gets used for something so it can get converted so if you take on 150 grams of protein right now it'll take a long ass time to digest and that will mitigate some of these effects to some degree so it doesn't matter a lot but you're only going to be able to use a certain amount of it over a given time window for muscle protein synthesis. It will contribute to whole body anabolism, but like your organ tissue eats up a whole lot of protein, you know, so that'll get used for it. Your liver will also be converting a ton of that protein into other substrates. You know, we have both glucogenic and ketogenic amino acids. So that's going to become, uh, you know, basically, I mean, I'm simplifying, but the equivalent of fats and carbohydrates after conversion for you. Um, so, it gets energy, it gets turned into energy or it gets used in other tissues. That's not muscle. But if you were to take that same 150 grams and then have three boluses of 50 grams, you might have very, some, some very slight, small advantage, um, you know, to being able to, to, to utilize more of it for the purposes that a body will cares about. Right. And when we look at the data collectively and we kind of cross reference a lot of different areas of research, when we look at like the intermittent fasting data or the time restricted feeding data, um, and we, we, we start to see that you need to probably get at least around like three boluses of protein per day, even with matched protein uh, intakes and of a sufficiently high amount to really give you getting the benefits. So if you can get at least three protein feedings per day, 
And if you can make sure your training happens after one of them at any point in the day, then you've kind of like, you, you've done what you need as far as protein timing. And if you want to really, really optimize things and you're a competitive bodybuilder, um, I don't have applied data to back this up, but I have some mechanistic data and just my understanding of how things roll, then you might be better served with say four to six feedings per day. I don't think four, five isn't better than four, six isn't better than four. I'm just saying that, you know, we don't have data on the specific population, the specific circumstances that we're talking about. Um, and there's really, it's not that hard to have three meals and a protein shake in a given day, um, or just three meals and a snack, you know, like having some, some Greek yogurt before bed or something like that. So in my mind, I always balance like the potential benefit versus the potential harm, annoyance, or cost. And for most people I talk to, it is very, very low hanging fruit to go from maybe their typical breakfast, lunch, and dinner to spreading things across evenly in terms of protein intake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It just means typically having a little more protein in lunch and breakfast and a little less in dinner. And then it's, it's still quite easy to then, okay, add another meal, you know, and maybe that helps me not only hit the protein intake, you know, values that we think are probably maximally beneficial, say around 0.7 grams per pound or 1.6 grams per kg or higher, and, you know, getting a nice even distribution across the day. I don't think it's going to make a big difference, but uh, small differences do make differences when you're talking about competitive sport um, or just how much people care about these goals and their willingness to make slight lifestyle modifications to get some gain. Well, I'm sure too that like what also plays a role is like how how badly do you like screw that up to right where it's like again your goal is 150 grams of protein and it's like do you get you know 130 of that in one meal and then 20 the rest of the day it's like okay that's going to be worse off and probably have a bigger effect than if you do something where it's like maybe 170 or something like that right so i think definitely like how bad you screw that up i think is going to uh, play a role there and and is this kind of where like i guess that uh myth of like because I, I feel like i get asked this all the time like oh hey I, I heard that having too much protein is like i'm gonna my body's gonna waste it or something like that it's not wasting it it's just like essentially it's just not all gonna go towards like muscle protein synthesis and, and things like that essentially is what you're saying there with that Exactly. It can go towards muscle protein breakdown to some degree. Um, and it can go towards other tissues. It'll get used usefully. And it may mean that if you take in protein for the rest of the day, more of that will get used towards muscle protein synthesis. And also importantly, if you take 30 grams of whey right now, or you have a steak with 90 grams in it, and the rest of your meal has another 10 grams, you have a 100 gram protein meal, that's not going to be the same as having a small amount of whey. It's going to really extend that digestion time. So uh, for the same reason that casein typically doesn't perform any better or worse than whey, the digestion time has an interaction effect here. Um, you know, like if you look at the area under the curve for muscle protein synthesis of having whey or casein, they end up being very similar. And the applied studies show no significant difference when you're supplementing with the two for actual muscle growth or strength gains. But if you look at the short term, you can see this much higher peak in muscle protein synthesis from whey, but then it drops off while the casein kind of stays moderately elevated for a longer period of time. And then the question is, okay, well, what matters? And there's no reason to think that having a higher peak in muscle protein synthesis really matters. Of course, it's the total accrual of tissue, which conceptually would be more related to the area under the curve. So it's probably not even that big of a deal if you did have, you know, 100, 150 grams of, in, in one meal, but it's less efficient. And I think it, it could add up if we're talking about six months of doing that yeah. um, to where you're just growing a little bit slower. Um, so it, it does come down to, you know, it, it's very difficult to capture these small effects. We have mechanistic reason to believe they are there. And we do have data to show that at some certain point, if you really start to, like you said, screw up the, the timing or the distribution, it does have an impact. Like only eating one or two meals per day and trying to hit these protein targets. We actually do have reason to believe applied studies that that's probably not enough. So there is some limit, right? Um, so I think I think it, it, it does force us to lean a little bit uh, outside of the constraints of, of the applied research, but I think that's probably always going to be the case. And, and like you said too, like it's something where maybe in the short term, it's not going to make a big difference if you do it like once or twice. But again, if you do that regularly over time, that's where it will start to add up. So I, I think, cause, cause again, I think people end up like kind of micromanaging it and be like, Oh, I totally screwed up. I, it's like, no, you're fine. One day, no big deal. It's just like, you know, just again, the, the more often you do it, the more it's going to play a role uh, in it. So awesome. Well, uh, I, I know we're coming here at the top of the hour. So, um, uh, don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just had uh, maybe I was going to, I had a few questions, but I had one that I wanted to um, 
bring up now that, you know, we were shorter on time here is, is there any research on your end that is, that's coming up or anything that you can share there on that or anything that you're like interested in that's coming out here soon that you think will be like, you know, uh, you know, big towards uh, any of the research that we have going on right now? Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we've got some cool stuff going on here at AUT. Um, last year, we finished data collection on our weight gain study, uh, where we got some funding from Legion Athletics, much appreciated, uh, as well as Renaissance Periodization, much appreciated, to run an eight-week study where looking at different rates of weight gain. So we had a group that was in a 5% surplus, a 15% surplus for eating and maintenance. Uh, we at AUT were actually training them three times a week. Um, you know, in, in our labs. So they got to train hard and uh, we were blinded to what the nutritional intervention was. My my good friend and RD for 3DNJ, Steve Taylor, as well as initially some help from Brad, Dr. Brad Dieter was uh, managing their nutrition side of it. We were blinded to, to that. And um, it got massively delayed because of the COVID lockdowns that we had over 2020 and 2021. Also limited our sample size, but we have enough to, to make some cool inferences. Um, looking at uh, the data as a whole rather than broken down by groups and just kind of doing a regression based upon rate of weight gain and the relationship with fat gain, strength gain, and muscle mass gain. So we're working on that manuscript now. So we'll be publishing that this year. Awesome. Uh, and then we're also analyzing my case study of one where I did the the stretching boot uh, for for stretch, stretch quote unquote mediated hypertrophy. I, I yeah. did 12 weeks of, of stretching both my calves and comparing it to my kind of baseline normal change from just doing my calf training. So, um, yeah, we're analyzing that uh, muscle thickness change data now and writing it up. So those two studies will be neat. You'll have the, the case study of my calves as well as the probably more useful study on, you know, close to 20 uh, resistance trained individuals in both men and women. And uh, what happens when you put them on larger versus smaller surpluses or just try to stay in maintenance and see whether or not that, that can induce gains. Yeah. Also, I remember last time you were on, we kind of talked about that, but then it just goes to show how long this stuff uh, takes uh, to get done. Um, that will be really interesting. We'd love to have you back on at some point to, to chat about that one, because I think that one will be you know, really helpful uh, for a lot of people here in terms of, you know, again, do you need being a surplus or not or how large? And then the calf one, um, is that, is there, again, I'm sure you probably can't really share too much about that yet, but is there anything, was there anything that, you know, kind of shocked you with that or was it all kind of what you thought it was going to be uh, with it? Well, we I've actually got a little bit of data now. This is, I think, the first time I've been able to talk about it, where it does look like the stretching increased uh, my muscle thickness, not nearly as much as uh, the Warnicke studies looking at kind of recreationally trained individuals. But there was a, I mean, it's hard, I can't say significant because I'm only one person, you know, we're not looking at the standard deviation, right? Um, but there was a, a, a notable increase beyond what we think was the typical variation in my calf size during the first four weeks of baseline measurements where I wasn't stretching. And um, then in like the post one week period where I stopped, there was a slight decline indicating that some of the muscle damage and associated edema and muscle swelling dissipated, um, but it didn't go all the way back to baseline. So the stretching seemed to do something. So it's not a bad idea. And um, it may not, you may not have to do an hour per day in a boot at an eight out of 10 discomfort, but I can say that I am actually now still including some stretching in my, uh, in my training at the moment, uh, more like, you know, 10 minutes, uh, a few days per week um, kind, of, kind of deal. Because I, I, I don't know that I, you need necessarily that really, really high dosage. Uh, and maybe that's just what I need to maintain the gains I got from the stretching. We shall see. Uh, and so, um, on that, is that on top of doing like regular calf work or is that just, you just were doing the stretching? Yeah, that's on top of me doing 10 to 12 sets a week right now. Previously during the study, I was doing 20 sets and stretching. And then for the period where I stopped stretching, I was doing 12 sets, no stretching for one week. And we saw a slight decline in muscle thickness. But again, we think that almost certainly is just related to the dissipation of uh, edema because stretching like training actually does cause muscle damage. Yeah, that's interesting. That'll be super cool to see that again. There's been so much research on the, you know, the uh, mu long muscle length, you know, and hypertrophy. So it'll be really cool to see that. And just another thing to, to add to it. I know you said it's just a, uh, in a one, but that will be, you know, cool. Another cool thing to add to it. Do you think this is going to be something that you'll be able to do for other muscle groups as well, too? If you can figure out a way to stretch it, I think it will have a, a, a similar effect. You'd, you'd think, right? I mean, I say that speculatively because actually all of Warnicke's data is in the caps. So um, it would be really interesting to see. Like last night, I was actually stretching my pecs and my quads. So I'm giving it a shot.
giving it a shot. Love it. Awesome. Well, uh, Eric, again, appreciate your time. Um, looking forward to chatting with you again. Is there anywhere where you'd like to lead the audience to uh, moving forward? Yeah. Best place to find my stuff is at uh, 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D. Uh, and from there, you can find links to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash team3dmj, uh, where you can see my contest prep intermittent vlog. I've done my first one. And you can oh. see my physique, the exercises I do, and kind of my general approach. Um, you can also follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram, where I post regularly about things like this that I do, like jumping on podcasts. And the only other place I'd encourage you to check out is on any podcast platform, uh, Iron Culture, where myself and Omar, we, we go through a lot of these topics as well, in addition to everything else related to the history, science, and culture of lifting. Awesome. Love it. Thank you, Eric. Again, appreciate your time, and we will uh, talk to you next time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want more free content like this, follow me on Instagram at jeffh91 underscore or visit jhhealth.net. See you next time.